Hey, welcome to Bedside Matters. This happens to be the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact all of us every single day. Hopefully, we're going to give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm Peter Tilden. I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper. David? Hi, Peter. Hi, Anna. Good to see you. Anna Vaccino, how are you, Anna? I'm doing fantastically well. Thanks for having me. So everybody's healthy. Uh, On tonight's episode, we're going to talk about a new way to kill or reduce cancer cells, specifically melanoma, that uses your own cells to fight, which is pretty stunning. And I've got to ask David if that's the new way to treat cancer. And the second thing we're going to talk about tonight, I'm very interested in this, there is an actual treatment for vitiligo. And there's some new news on, and this may sound bizarre, but using animal organs as transplants to humans. They've got some new information, and this could, down the road, I guess, address organ shortages. So we'll ask David about that. And in Hey, What About Me? A lot about food allergies lately, and people getting food allergies later in life, and the increase, a huge increase in food allergies. Why? Why now? So we'll address all of that. David, let's start with using your own cells to fight cancer, specifically melanoma. It sounds fascinating. It is fascinating, and it's all based on this monoclonal antibody wave that we're now using to treat everything. And monoclonal antibodies are created in a laboratory, and they are antibodies against specific things that are not good for us, antigens in specific, and different diseases. So we're using this in cancer, we're using this in autoimmune diseases, we're using this all over the place. But with respect to melanoma, melanoma has been a obviously a very difficult cancer to treat. It's about 1% of all skin cancers, but it's the deadliest. So getting a viable treatment for this is very important. So what they did was that they started using zebrafish, which they've been using over 40 years for research. And they took the larva of a zebrafish and it's transparent. So they, yeah, the the larva, remember that? Oh yeah, it sounds disgusting, but I want to hear where you're going with this. As you're saying this, but I'll I'll support... And in the sense that the fact that some scientist goes, I know how to do this. Let's get this fish's larva. Let's get their clear larva that we can't even see. (laughs) It'll probably help. Thank goodness that people like stayed awake in science class, you know, and went to graduate school. Thank Thank God. Well, I'm not sure about that because it did take them 40 years studying (laughs) this fish. So, Well, there's a lot of fish. Let's try salmon. Let's try haddock, monkfish, tilapia. All of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, look what we got here. So what they did, and they could see through the larva, it's transparent, so they could actually watch what was going on. And they, they generated these molecules that they could attach to the immune cells that were trying to fight the cancer. Cancer has its own way of sabotaging our immune system. It can actually transform our immune cells so that they are actually helpful to grow the cancer. So what they did, they took these little molecules and they put them into what were called protocells and they transplanted these little protocells into the immune cells. And basically they converted these immune cells, which were being knocked out and integrated by the cancer cells. And they made these cells pro-inflammatory. So the cancer cells were using these to grow them more cancer cells. What these protocells did was that they in fact took these immune cells and they fortified them to create some inflammatory cells that would kill the cancers. And they did this first in a laboratory and ultimately, I'll cut to the chase, they did this in humans and it seems to be working and it's a 
fascinating way now to use these monoclonal antibodies to go ahead and attach them to our are own they system. Just doing it with melanoma? Or are they doing it with other cancers? They're doing it with many other cancers. That's and, so cool. And actually, the, the, it's interesting. This zebrafish has very many similarities to our organ system. It has several organs that we share in common. So they're using the same technology to see about treating other organs. We better hope those zebrafish don't unionize. Or, or that we don't run out. You know what I mean? Um, oh my gosh, please preserve the zebrafish. They're going to save us. David, I'm curious. You, you know, my, my skepticism is only that once you treat something like with a medicine, it's targeted, but it still affects other organs in the body. So when you convert these cells that were there for a reason, these healthy cells for a reason, and the cancer is attacking them, and they're co-opting those cells to help spread the cancer, and now those cells have been converted to something else. Is something else, do they know nothing else is impacted? or These are very targeted towards these specific melanocytes. So it's a great question, Peter, but they, they're able to target these cells. I have a question for you and Anna. So zebrafish get melanoma. They get it on their tail. So if the zebrafish can get melanoma, and all this time we've been told to stay out of the sun because we'll get melanoma, how do the zebrafish get melanoma? Well, that's melanoma? what I was wondering because, you know, when like your mom would tell you to wear a t-shirt over your swimsuit so you didn't get sunburn on your shoulders, but you're like, my legs are fine. They're in the water. But there's the zebrafish getting the melanoma. I don't have an answer to this. this oh, just was riddle a, me I this. The zebrafish were put here with melanoma to help <laughs> humans battle melanoma. But that's a spiritual slant I didn't see coming, Tilden. Or, as they're called, the unluckiest fish in the, in the ocean. <laughs> what, can I, what can I tell you? By the way, Anna brought it up. The FDA just approved this new medicine for vitiligo. And I know that even though I, I don't know how many millions of people suffer with this, it's got to be debilitating emotionally, correct? I, I feel like when I saw this information, I was like, it's an autoimmune disease, so it must be an oral treatment, but it's actually topical. So I'm very curious to hear about this from Kipper. Well, that's the beauty of this. It's a topical for an autoimmune disorder that has up to this point, not been able to receive good treatment. We've been using B ultraviolet light. It's sort of okay, but it doesn't really do the job. They've tried surgeries to take out some of these patches. They've tried other medicines like steroids. Nothing has really worked for this, but this particular product, another monoclonal antibody is called Opsilura, and they're never easy to remember these monoclonals. But Opsilura is the first of its kind that's been FDA approved as a cream, a monoclonal that is able to destroy what is destroying the melanocytes. So the melanocytes are those cells that create melanin and the pigment, but the autoimmune disease destroys those cells. This monoclonal antibody destroys those antibodies. And is vitiligo like other autoimmune where people don't understand why the body's attacking itself? It just kind of is a recessive gene that starts to happen? Yes. And it's also associated with other autoimmune diseases like Hashimoto's and Graves. So we're using our own immune system against itself in a way. And that's what these monoclonals are doing. As we said in the beginning of the show, we're using monoclonal antibodies for so many different things. And here's another example. 
So do I get a break if I'm using if the doctor's using my own system to help fight my system? Is there a, <laughs> discount, a discount involved in the drug company? Yeah, your copay's <laughs> in half. <laughs> but so let me ask you something else, David. I always I flash to Parkinson's where a part of the brain is not producing dopamine. So you give it a precursor and it becomes dopamine in the brain. Is there a part of the brain that causes this stuff? That have they ever mapped that where they said vitiligo is a part of the brain is causing this to happen? Is that is that a brain chemistry thing? I don't think so, Peter. It's a good question, but I, I don't think so. I think it's just part of this confusing autoimmune spectrum that Anna mentioned how confusing this is. Mm. And it's just one of those things that is sort of associated with these other autoimmune diseases. But for people that are suffering vitiligo, it's awful for them because it keeps them from socializing. There's no real cures. This is a cure. After about a year on this, 75% of people that had vitiligo on the face were cured. And 50% of these people after a year that had it also on their body had an amazing response. So, so, so their melanin is coming back. Yes. Is this of every color and creed, David? Is, I'm, not, I'm asking this joke. I'm serious. Does it, does it work for Caucasian, African-American, Asian? Does it work? Is melanin melanin and it doesn't matter. You return to whatever color you need and one is not harder than the other? Melanin is melanin. And in certain cultures and races, uh, there's more melanin in these cells, which creates a darker pigmentation. But that comes back also. It doesn't matter how dark yes. or how light you are. Wow. It comes back to yes. your... Wow. Peter, that's an excellent question because the original studies in this did not actually incorporate multiple races. There they were go. mostly done on Caucasians. But the concept of restoring a melanocyte is the same in all races. So we suspect that it will be the same, but that's a very good question. All right, David, in our This Just Happened segment, there was a news story this week about a pig heart transplantation. And I know the guy who got the pig heart didn't last long, but that doesn't mean there's not positive news about replacing a human heart with a pig heart, which sounds creepy. Putting animal parts in humans sounds wrong, and yet we have this short organ shortage, donation shortage, which is massive. I know you can address that. If there's a positive to this with a re-engineered pig heart, I'm there. I'm in line. I'm knocking people down to get, if that's what it is, I'll do it. There is a big positive to this, and you're exactly right. There's a tremendous shortage, especially for hearts. And so they found that the pig heart had many similarities to the human heart physiologically. And what they did, this happened at, at NYU, and this gentleman, I think, lived about 55, 57 days with this new heart actually succumbed not from his heart, but he succumbed from a virus that pigs carry, which is called circovirus. So it wasn't really the heart that got him. And so going forward, if they're going to use pigs, they're going to have to address the virus that we see in pigs. But what was interesting in this was that they genetically modified the transplanted tissue. And what they did was they took, I think there were 10 genetic modifications they made, Half of them were in order to keep the pig heart from growing as big as it can grow. The human cavity can't hold a pig heart, so it kept it from growing. It also blunted its immune response. And the other genetic modifications were to do just that, which were to modify the immune response so that it wouldn't be rejected. So he didn't reject the heart. He just succumbed to a virus. 
But they think down in the future, they'll be able to use maybe potentially modified animal organs. I know that they're using cadavers. They're planting like kidneys and cadavers to see the rejection, to see what, how it forms, whatever. And they're getting results that, that appear to be hopeful down the road, correct? The Japanese, using stem cells, made a kidney. Whoa. So, you know, there's several different avenues for transplantation. Jeez. Wow. So here's my question, and I don't pretend that any of us know these numbers, but is the organ shortage because people aren't doing organ donation? There is a shortage, and this is a big problem. And so we're doing far more livers than we are lungs. Lungs, you need two of them, and it's a little more complicated. Kidneys are probably the most common because people have two kidneys, so you can donate one of your kidneys. And We do marrow transplantation, which is also relatively simple these days, because if you take the marrow from one person to put it into the person that needs it, the person that donated will grow their marrow back. Right. So that's cool. But primarily, Anna, you're right. It's it's very difficult to find these organs and different states, which I think is interesting. Different states have different laws and different waiting lists. If you need a liver and there's nothing in your neighborhood, you can go out of state. Are there limitations to that though, David? If you go out of state, are you not as high on the list as somebody who's already in that state? You're put on the list based on a number of things, not where you live, but based on what your potential is for maintaining that liver. So if you have a drug abuse problem or you're an alcoholic per se, and you haven't stopped drinking, you're not going to be on that list. If you have other underlying illnesses, especially if they're immune mediated, you're not going to be on that list. Anna, that's another part of the answer Mm. to your question is that the recipients have to be in a certain position to receive an organ. If I need a liver right now, can I go on every list, sign up to every list in the country or is there a limitation? Oh yeah. Is there a database? You could go on every list and there is a database, but the database is more for the donors as opposed to the recipients. Wow. And can a doctor advocate for you? You know, I've You hear about these stories every year um, where somebody's that ill and waiting for an organ, and you can't believe that they're not at the top of the list, but I'm sure there are other people just as sick, and we just see that because it's a local story. Can doctors advocate? Is there a portion of this where it's about my guy who's going to go if he doesn't get this by Tuesday? I'm very happy to say that you can't do that. You can't beat the system. I had a patient many years ago who was a well-known singer, had a big following. And he needed a lung transplant. And somehow word got out uh, that he was in the hospital and that he needed a lung transplant. So there must have been a thousand letters that came to the hospital, people, you know, willing to donate their lung if something happened to them. But there was one letter from a woman that was willing to give this man both of her lungs while she was alive. I don't think she thought it through. No. But doctor, well, and not around didn't happen. I think she's the number one fan. You get number one fan (laughs) status. Yes, yes, yes. Yep, yep. But there, but it's very well controlled, and that's 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 good news. I have a neighbor here that years ago got a a kidney, maybe it was kidney, but I know lung transplant, and he seems to be. I see him. He's he's doing great, running, jogging, whatever. Do transplants today? Is that not that it's like oh, it's nothing, you know, but. Is it more mainstream now that you get lungs, you can live a full life, a liver, kidneys, heart? Again, you're going to get a donor that has a healthy organ into a recipient that's going to remain 
monitored and starts out pretty healthy. And the biggest problem with these transplants for patients are the effect on their immune system because they're given medicines that modulate the immune system. So if they get sick for some other reason, they get COVID. It's a perfect example where you right. have to rally your immune system. Oof. Or if you have one of catch one of these diseases that's autoimmune where your immune system is overactive and you're taking things that are going to stimulate the system, it's very complicated. So the biggest problem are, are not the transplanted organs. It's maintaining the system from rejecting those organs. Gotcha. Are the drugs, the anti-rejection drugs, are they that toxic to live with or is it is it something that the normal life you can you can go out your life kind of no they're generally they're generally well tolerated now and people live pretty normal lives pretty amazing all right before we go we always uh, do a segment called hey what about me and we have a caller who is talking about something that's been in the news big time and that is the fact that allergies seem to be increasing i have allergies all of a sudden that i never had Everybody I know is dealing with an allergy thing. And I don't know, David, if it's, well, let, let him ask the question. I feel like we'll this is my it. life story. So I'm, I'm very allergies, perked up to really? listen to this. All of a sudden it just came on now? Well, no, but I mean, having food allergies, having the thing, people write me about allergies, uh, about c cooking for their food allergies. So, so I'm very curious. Deal. Yeah, I want to hear it because this okay, is the world I go. live in. Yeah. Let's give a listen. Hi, Dr. Kemper. Uh, my, my name is David. I'm in my 40s and... All of a sudden, for I don't know why, but for some reason, I've developed several new allergies that I've never had before. Is this something that happens? Is this weird? Why now? Well, David, thank you for your question. And the answer is yes, it does happen. Happened to you, unfortunately. And we are seeing more food allergies. We're seeing allergies for a number of different reasons, none of which we're really clear on. But there's some theory that we have a system where there's better sanitation. A lot of allergens are taken out of the system. And if you're living in an urban center, you're far more likely to get allergies because now new stuff is coming in. If you're living in a rural area where you're exposed to things all the time, you're less likely to get allergies. And allergies are mediated by part of the immune system, the white blood cell, the immunoglobulin E. And that is a cell that mediates an allergic reaction to protect the body when there's a threat coming in, either from a food, an environmental, something it's not recognizing. And when the IgE is activated, it brings in fluids, it dilates blood vessels, it brings in histamine, basically. And it creates a little microenvironment around either the skin or wherever your allergy shows up. And it's very uncomfortable. And it does that in order to alert you that you better do something about it. We don't really know a lot about why it's on the rise. We also know that there are allergies that are not IgE associated. For instance, there are food allergies that people get as a problem that they have with a systemic illness. So people that have systemic illnesses like celiac disease, their illness has more to do with their digestive tract and what's going on in their digestive tract that they can't assimilate these foods. And that creates what is an allergic, essentially, reaction. So there's two ways to get this. And we're seeing a lot more of this on one level, David, because we're recognizing it more and people are, are more aware of this. 
There are several kinds of tests that we do. We do these topical tests, these skin tests. We do patch tests for things that are very much like what you're dealing with, Anna, that that have a, a little different mediated response. And we also challenge people now where we give them a little bit of an allergen over time and it gets better. There was a theory for many years that kids that had peanut allergies should just avoid peanuts altogether and touching a peanut, eating a peanut. The new theory is, is that we start giving these kids little doses of peanuts as soon as they're out of the womb. And by doing these micro dosings, they don't get the allergies. So it was all those parents who were cautious and didn't give the kids all of the stuff may have, may have been fomenting this explosion of allergies later on because your system goes, I'm 13. What's that? It's a peanut. And boom, I don't know how to handle that. Wow. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, so here's my question for you. Then is something like leaky gut a real thing, like the gut permeability issue? Because like I hear that bandied about. I mean, I know for me, it probably is true, but for like a regular person who's on the standard American diet, have you trashed your gut and then that leads to food allergies down the line? Or is that just, is that real? Leaky gut is a thing, but it's, it's not a thing onto itself. It's part of another illness. It's a symptom of another illness and it is real. And you are losing certain substances that need to be absorbed and you can't tolerate other substances. So it is a real thing, does need to be treated, and is associated with some other problems. I think you should name every illness like that instead of like these these scientific names, like pushy liver. I've got you know? creaky bones. <laughs> He's got an ad- attitudinal lungs. It's like, you know, just give it, give it an adjective. If you have a question for Dr. Kipper that you would like answered on the show, head on over to bedsidematters.org and ask your question there. We accept cards. We accept letters. We accept internet messages and maybe you'll get your question answered. And you should also check out David's book called Override. The cool thing about this book is it tells you how you can change behaviors at work and at home and your lifestyle once you understand your brain chemistry. That's a pretty big thing because people spend a lot of money to try and figure out how to change their life. When you have this missing piece, you got a better shot at controlling who you are and not letting uh, your, your brain coordinate who, who you are without you fully participating. So it's really cool. Anna Vicino, check out her website. Her book's Eat Happy, Eat Happy 2. Gluten-free, grain-free, low-carb recipes for life. And I love, I look at her site for the recipes. Eggs poached in marinara. I've never seen it's that so before. Good. That looks like, oh. The Italians call it eggs in purgatory, but wow. it's eggs just poached in marinara. It's really good. Never seen that. And then low-carb shepherd's pie with cauliflower Oh, yeah, that's mash. really good. Yeah, see, you see? won't even know that it doesn't have the potatoes so on So go top. to the site, but you got to make me the, the eggs poached in marinara. Wow. And I got to say, because some of my recipes, in fact, a lot of them come from moms writing me saying like, my kid can't have peanuts or almonds or dairy or whatever the thing is. And then I write a whole new thing because that's the way to my heart is if you have a kid with, with allergies or a kid who can't enjoy something yummy, I always want to invent a new version of it. Thank you, Anna, for today. Dr. Kipper, thank you for your answers and your patience, of course. And thank you for listening. And Laurie, thank you for producing. And if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, follow us at bedsidematters.org. And I will see you next episode. If you have a question for Dr. Kipper, you can go to our website, bedsidematters.org, and leave a voicemail or submit a question. The information on Bedside Matters and the resources available for download 
are not intended as and should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on bedside matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.